0: Look on a map east of Clayton, Georgia, and you'll see a slender, innocent-looking line separating the two great states of Georgia and South Carolina. Yet don't be deceived. If you went in person to the location on the map to see that line, you would find a roaring, raging river. The Chautuga River has some of the wildest whitewater in the United States. The names given to some of the river's Class 5 rapids speak for themselves. Sockum Dog, Seven Foot Falls, Corkscrew, Bull Sluice. But not so with one particular spot. The most dangerous rapid on the river, a Class 6 hydraulic, has the most innocent-sounding name. Woodall Shoals. From the shore, it doesn't look like much. But under the surface, there's a smooth, steep slide that creates a near-perfect, inescapable whirlpool. It's called a keeper hydraulic. Folks have fallen into that rapid and never surfaced. In the past, locals have thrown dynamite into the water right there at that spot in hopes of dislodging a trapped body. Well, today, for $150, you can hire a professional river rat to escort you down the Chattooga River and help you navigate all of the rapids except the Woodall Shoals. You see, gods are expert rafters, and they know the river. And on their own, they would have no problem navigating Woodall Shoals. But no one takes a raft down this rapid. No one. You see, a conscientious God would never float Woodall Shoals on his own, let alone with a raft full of thrill-seekers, and certainly not in the presence of spectators. Here's the fear. If a novice sees a raft or a kayak sail through Woodall Shoals, they might think that there's nothing to it. Hey, if he can do it, so can I. And he might try. That's a risk that no one with any experience, any knowledge of this river wants to take. There's an unwritten rule. Nobody takes on Woodall Shoals just in case somebody sees them and thinks anybody can do it. For their own sake, the rafting companies and responsible river guides have agreed to make Woodall Shoals off limits. If someone did die in the hydraulic, it would be bad for business. The whole industry would suffer. Rafting professionals see the bigger picture than just their own egotistical afternoons or fun adventures. Rafting professionals, they they understand the dynamics. It's not a question of whether the gods can raft Woodall Shoals. Of course they can. There's no law against it, and they have the ability. But is it worth the risk given the danger it poses to present and future clientele, and ultimately the business that they desire to grow. For a similar reason, Paul writes 1 Corinthians 9. We learn in chapter 8 that Paul was free to to eat meat sacrificed to idols. The idol is nothing, and the meat is just meat. Yet many of the Christians associated the city's meat-eating with idolatry. And they viewed Paul's freedom to eat as a concession to their former pagan sinful lifestyle. Like an experienced river god, Paul had the skill to navigate the turbulence of the pagan culture around him without getting sucked in and drowning in the idolatry. But if a new Christian saw Paul eating pagan pulled pork or a temple tenderloin, they might be tempted to slide their raft into the temple culture, the pagan culture, and suddenly find themselves in a keeper hydraulic that had them trapped. Why run the risk at a time when Christianity was trying to attract new clientele? As far as Paul was concerned, nothing was worth misleading a spectator or damaging a brother or bringing disdain on the cause of Christ. As an apostle... As a Christian God, Paul had a higher calling on his life. He saw the bigger picture. So what if an activity was legal? So what if he was free to indulge? So what if he happened to enjoy it? Were his liberties and his own personal pleasures worth the risk of harming the growth of the new church? Well, in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul's answer is an emphatic no. In chapter 9 Paul runs through a list of rights and liberties that he possessed as an apostle and as a church leader. Then he gets to the much more important point of why those rights and liberties were secondary and superficial compared to the integrity of the gospel preacher and the health of the church and even the salvation of souls. Well, he begins in verse 1. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? See, Paul was not only a follower of Jesus and a pastor of his church. He was also an apostle, a pastor of pastors. He had been sent out by Jesus himself to cross cultures and to bring the gospel to new people groups. And yet it was Paul's humility... His own acknowledgement of his weaknesses and his dependence on Jesus that often caused folks to question his apostleship. See, he didn't just sashay into the room and act like the alpha dog. Paul was unassuming in his appearance and in his mannerisms. And this is why Paul often had to remind the churches of his own authority and qualifications. And here he does so. Am I not an apostle? And then he lists two apostolic markers. First, he was free. He was free from the law. Paul was called the apostle to the Gentiles. He was an ambassador of God's grace. And then second, he had seen the risen Christ with his own eyes. On the road to Damascus, Jesus had appeared to Paul, literally knocked him off his high horse. The first apostles were distinguished by the fact that they were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Lord Jesus. And of all people, the Corinthians should have been confident of Paul's leadership and apostleship. For he continues in verse 1, Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Paul points to the church in Corinth as evidence As exhibit A of his leadership. I mean, a thriving church had been born in a wicked city. It was obvious that God had blessed Paul's efforts in Corinth. The new and growing believers in this church were a testimony to the legitimacy of his ministry. Yes, Paul was without a doubt an apostle in the early church. Which put him in the same circle as the other apostles and entitled him to the same privileges. He says so in verse 3. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Now understand, in the ancient world, travelers had a tough time finding food and lodging when they went to a new city. And it was understood among the churches that every effort should be made to show hospitality to true apostles. To provide them eat and drink. In fact, it was the Didache, which was a manual of church practices that circulated in the early church, that devoted a whole section to identifying true apostles for this very purpose. You know, in fact, even today, churches practice this kind of hospitality. Whenever we invite a guest speaker to share with our church or at a conference we're hosting, we provide for the needs of that person while they're with us. I mean, it would be a shame to us if a person came to minister at Calvary Chapel and we made him finance his own meals and his hotel and his transportation, I mean, that would be rude. We would be shameful in doing that. We would provide appropriate hospitality. And Paul's point here is that as an apostle in the church, in the church ample food and lodging was his right. It was his privilege. As was the prerogative of traveling with a wife. For he writes about this in verse 5. He says, Do we have no right to take along a believing wife? As do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord in Cephas. And of course, Cephas was another name for Peter. The word Cephas means rock, which refers to the name by which Jesus called him. An apostle traveled extensively. He logged a lot of miles, and he was blessed with those frequent flyer privileges. His medallion status afforded him not only food and lodging, but also the right to take along his wife. Apparently, he got a buddy pass. And it was Peter who always liked to take along the missus, which obviously creates a really big problem for the Roman Catholic Church. You know, the Roman Church asserts that Peter was the first pope. Well, if that's the case, they got a married pope which reminds me of the newspaper tycoon who had three sons. He wanted to select a successor to the, to the newspaper, and so he wasn't sure which son would make the best newspaper man. So he proposed a test for their potential in the industry. He asked each boy to compose the most shocking, sensational, three-word headline that they could dream up. Well, the first son he submitted the lead-in, Obama Turns Republican. Oh my, that was sensational for sure. But the second son bested him. Palestinians become Jewish. Wow, how's that for a headline? But it was the third son who won the prize. His headline had just two words. Pope elopes. (laughs) How's that for an over-the-top headline? Well, here Paul's point is that as an apostle, he had rights and privileges that he was willing to forfeit. That he didn't come into the city asking to be taken for dinner or put up in a hotel, even though that was his right. Nor did he travel with his wife. In fact, Paul didn't have a wife. As we read in chapter 7, Paul had chosen to stay single so that he could be singly devoted to Jesus. Well, he continues in verse 6. He says, "...or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working?" Again, understand, from its earliest days, the church supported its leaders financially. Thus, they could devote themselves to the full-time study of God's Word and guidance of God's flock. Paul, too, was entitled to such support. But during his time in Corinth, he waived this privilege. Acts chapter 18, verse 3 tells us that in Corinth, Paul lodged with a married couple named Aquila and Priscilla. They were tent makers. Paul also happened to be, um, have this trade himself, and so he helped them sow tents and sails. And by doing so, he was able to make ends meet and keep from being a burden to the church. But again, this kind of work on Paul's behalf was out of the ordinary. This was not standard apostolic protocol. And Paul explains why. He writes, "...whoever goes to war at his own expense." I mean, a soldier doesn't pay the bill for his gun and ammo. He doesn't purchase his provisions out of his own pocket. I mean, a soldier is supported by the people he defends. How can a soldier focus on the fight at hand if he's worried about his family back home? Whether they're starving, whether they're getting evicted. Distracted troops will make for defeated troops. A soldier will be better on the battlefield if he isn't so worried about the home front. And quite frankly, the same is true for a pastor. How can a pastor give himself fully to ministry and to the spiritual needs of God's people if he's concerned about how he's going to pay the bills for his own family? Even in the spiritual battle, even within God's army, whoever goes to war at his own expense. And who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruits? Or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Again, this is the same principle. You'll never find a thirsty vine dresser or a dairy farmer with brittle bones. Why? Because they drink of the wine and of the milk. They're supported from what they harvest. And the same should be true of a pastor. He should receive a salary from the offerings of the people. No, I'm not saying an exorbitant salary but I am saying an ample salary. I mean, the idea is to keep him from worrying about his family's needs and focused on God's work. Sadly, there are some churches that pay only the minimum. In fact, the people pray, Lord, you keep him humble and we'll keep him poor. Hey, a church with that kind of attitude may get what they pay for, a poor pastor. Paul is teaching us that a church needs to pony up and pay its pastors. He hammers home this point in verse 8. Do I say these things as a mere man? Or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, and here Paul quotes Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, a verse that at first glance, I mean, you're thinking, what in the world does this have to do with paying the pastor? But he says in verse 9, here he quotes Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. In other words, any good farmer will allow the ox to munch as he works. An ox would walk across the threshing floor, crushing the grain, separating the wheat from the chaff under his foot hooves. And as he worked, the farmer would always let him bend down from time to time and get a mouthful to eat. Only a cruel farmer would muzzle his ox. Besides, a weak ox would be worthless. And Paul is saying, just as feeding the ox is an expense of the harvest, supporting the pastor is a cost of the spiritual harvest. Well, Paul finishes his reflections on Deuteronomy 25. He says, is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it all together for our sakes? Well, for our sakes, no doubt, this is written. That he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. In other words, a fair day's wage for a good day's work isn't a carnal motivation. It's a good and godly incentive. There is hope behind hard work. There should be. Who among us doesn't want to be compensated for their employment? And the same is true of a pastor. Years ago, we had a church member suggest that my salary should be capped. It wasn't much, trust me. But he wanted to cap it. He wanted to say that I should make this amount and no more. I resisted the notion. Not because I want a lot of money, but I knew I needed a lot of hope. He says, he who plows should plow in hope. Even for a pastor, there are times when work feels like work. Why kill a man's financial incentive to do a good job? I sat the elders down and I told them, I said, Look, raise my salary if you want, lower my salary if you want, but don't ever put me in a situation where my performance can't do something about my salary. This produces a hopeless pastor. Paul understood the nature of pastors who are men, and what motivates us so often is the ability to earn a good day's pay for a good day's work. Paul says, he who plows should plow in hope. And then he says in verse 11, And if we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? Here Paul is capsulizing the important spiritual principle that he's been teaching in these last few verses. If a pastor and the church he serves helps you spiritually, then you ought to support them materially. If a church adds to your life spiritually and builds you up biblically and helps you focus eternally, then it is a minor trade-off for you to help that church pay a few bills. And if this principle applies to pastors, to all pastors, it certainly applied to Paul in his dealings with the Corinthians. For he tells them in verse 12, If others are partakers of this right over you, are, what, are we not even more? I mean, like believers today, apparently the Corinthians, they were quick to support the TV preachers who came on the tube and gave the slick presentations, you know, and begged for money. Oh, they were quick to open up their wallet for anybody with a fancy appeal or a sad sob story. But how about the local guy who's in the trenches grinding it out from week to week? The guy they know and that they trust. Here Paul says that if you've given to virtual strangers, how much more should they have given to him? He had planted this church. He had been with them on site, working alongside them for 18 months. He was even helping them at the moment, sort out their problems, work through their difficulties. Paul deserved their support more than anyone. And yet he writes, Nevertheless, we have not used this right But endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. And here is his main point. Not that he wanted more money. But that he was willing to forego the money for the sake of the gospel. Even though Paul had rights and privileges of an apostle, he didn't use them. Yes, he founded this church. Yes, he labored in this church. Yes, he was due a salary, probably even a vacation in a 401k. But Paul laid aside what he was entitled to so that no one would ever accuse him of selfish motives. More important to Paul than adequate compensation was the reputation of Christianity and the furtherance of the gospel. Paul didn't want to give anyone any reason to question his love for Jesus and his love for the church. Paul didn't want anyone to say, ah, that Paul, he's only in it for the money. Or, hey, don't, don't go to that church. Don't go to the church in Corinth. All they care about is your money. Again, Paul was not opposed to taking a paycheck for his work in the ministry. As he explained, it was his right. And he accepted financial support from other churches, just not while he was in Corinth. Must have been something about what had happened there. Perhaps some crooked clergy had previously worked the city, sort of built the saints out of their money. Many of the Corinthians had been burned financially and were now suspicious. And so Paul adapted his approach to the needs of the people he wanted to reach. In Corinth, he needed to prove to these folks that he cared for their soul, not their money. And if that took Paul making tents for a time, so be it. I want you to know that a similar concern guides our approach to money here at Calvary Chapel. I hope you know your church does have financial needs. Don't think Walton EMC donates the electricity. Or that Pastor Matt plays for free. Of course, knowing Pastor Matt, he'd probably play for free if we told him it was for the gospel's sake. But we need to pay Him. And Jenny always appreciates it when we do. But here's the decision that we have made as a church. We have deliberately chosen to low-key our appeals for funds and trust the Lord to provide what we need. And are there times when I'm tempted to be more bold in encouraging you to give? Of course there are. And I think I would be well within my right to stress the biblical emphasis to give. Yet for 35 years, we have for the most part waived that right. Because we realized how often the subject of money gets abused in churches today. Who hasn't been to a church and at some point felt manipulated? That's why for the sake of the gospel, at Calvary Chapel, we try to temper our appeals. Some Sundays, we don't even mention to you that there's an offering box. We prefer it when people come up and ask how they can give. We just want to prove to people that this church and its leaders exist for them, not the other way around. And we believe that if we're faithful to the ministry God gives us, then God is going to take care of our financial needs. We might even be able to pay Pastor Matt this week. Again, verse 13 makes clear that a pastor is justified in drawing a salary he says, Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple? And those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Paul here is referring to the Old Testament temple. And when the Old Testament worshiper brought his animal to the temple, the priests who administered the sacrifice would take a choice of the take a choice cut of the best beef. The priests were paid in beef. The Old Testament priest, in other words, was supported by the worshipers. And he says, even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. And what was true of the Old Testament priest should be true of the New Testament pastors. Pay them out of the offerings given to God. But, Paul writes in verse 15, I have used none of these things... Nor have I written these things, that it should be done so to me. For it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. Paul shudders the thought of anyone labeling him a money-hungry preacher. Notice his intensity here. He would rather die than bring shame on the ministry or give someone a reason to question his motives. It reminds me of Billy Graham early in his ministry. In fact, it was after a crusade here in Atlanta. The newspaper ran a photo of Billy leaving the stadium with bags of money in his hands. Billy was innocent of any wrongdoing. In fact, he just got stuck with making the deposit that day. But it looked really bad. And from that day forward, Billy Graham separated himself from the money. He put himself on a modest salary. He set up strict guidelines for how others in the ministry should handle the finances. He wanted everything to be above board. He eliminated any appearance of impropriety. This was Paul's attitude toward ministry. And this is the attitude that I have sought to maintain. In the lifestyle that I live, in the types of clothes that I wear, or the car that I drive, or in the movies that I watch. There are activities and privileges that I could justify as my right or my liberty to engage in, but I don't. I refrain for the gospel's sake. There was a time when one of my responsibilities was to mow the church lawn. I'd be pushing the mower around on a hot, blistering July afternoon, the temperature hovered in the high 90s, sweating profusely, perspiration pouring off my body. And my temptation was to pull off my shirt. I was free to peel off my shirt. But I didn't. For it hit me. What if one of the sisters in the church drives by and sees my bulging muscles (laughs) and my irresistible body and starts thinking the wrong thoughts? And for the sake of the church, for the gospel, for the cause of Christ, I curtailed my liberty to keep the ladies from stumbling. I mentioned it to you last week. As a Christian, I have the freedom to drink a glass of wine with my meal. But as a leader in the church, why would I? Why would I even go there? Oh yeah, Pastor Sandy, European Christians, they drink wine all the time. Well, I don't live in Europe. If I drunk wine all the time, I might be European too, but that's another thing. But I live in America, and it's estimated that in America, 16% of the population has a chemical propensity toward alcohol. Do you know that? 16% have a chemical dependence on alcohol. They, they have the potential of being alcoholics. That's one in every six people I meet. Every six person I meet has a potential problem with alcohol. Now, how could a pastor drinking not be a stumbling block to someone? And I'm sure 99.9% of the population has a friend or a family member who has been some way harmed by alcohol. Why would a pastor take what is a liability to so many and insist on it as a liberty for himself. Again, Paul tells us, it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. And Paul's boast was his sincerity toward the gospel. The apostle wasn't out to serve himself. His ministry had no ulterior motives. His sole ambition was for God to be glorified and for lost people to be saved. And Paul's goal was to avoid anything that could hinder someone from hearing and receiving God's good news. He writes in verse 16, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Being a pastor, preaching the gospel, wasn't just a career move for Paul. He didn't get the idea of being a pastor from, by talking to a career counselor or by browsing a brochure on potentials in apostleship. God called this man. God put a burden on his heart that he couldn't shake. He writes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. It wasn't Paul's choice. It was God's calling. When a young man approaches me about becoming a pastor, I always tell him, If you can do anything else other than pastor and be happy doing it, then don't pastor. Being a pastor, preaching the gospel, isn't just a job. Paul said it was laid on him of necessity. It was a passion, a calling. It was a mission from God. Paul was a talented man. And I'm sure he would have been successful at whatever he did in life. But satisfied? I doubt it. For God called him to preach the gospel, and he would be happy doing nothing less. Paul says in verse 17, For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. If Paul's ministry had been a job, he would have received wages, a reward. But it wasn't a job. It was a stewardship. It was a God-given responsibility. He says, What is my reward then? So what does Paul expect from the ministry? What is his takeaway? He answers, that when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. Paul's reward was for the opportunity to conduct his ministry with high integrity, with charity and with purity toward Christ and toward the gospel. In short, the ministry wasn't a paycheck to Paul. His goal was an eternal reward, the glory of God and the souls of men. God had put it in his heart to be a minister. Once I watched a television special on professional basketball, it was entitled, The First 50 Years of the NBA. One of the old-timers in the special made the comment, The team owners were the dumbest people on earth. They paid us a salary, but they didn't have to. We would have played for free. They played for the love of the game. And this was Paul. He preached for the love of the gospel. He said, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. And this is why I teach God's word. Now don't misunderstand. I appreciate my salary. Kathy does too. And rather than dumb, you are being biblical and prudent for paying your pastor. But I've said before, if you didn't pay me to pastor, I'd pay you to let me. Pastor is the most demanding, taxing, challenging, intense job I know. But I wouldn't trade it for any other job in the world. I thank God daily for the opportunity to communicate His Word and to pastor His people. Paul could have lived a carefree life. He could have fabricated tents full time. How easy would that have been? Owned a wealthy business. Instead, he signed on for the toughest job on earth. He says in verse 19, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. Now, Paul's freedom in Christ was so far-reaching. He was free from the law. He was free to eat meat. He was free from the desire for special treatment. He was free from money. And he was also free from the opinions of men. In a sense, Paul didn't care one iota what people thought of him. The newspapers, those bloggers, they could write what they wanted. It didn't matter to Paul. He didn't live for man's approval. He was free from all men. But he did care deeply for what people thought of Jesus and the gospel. So much so that Paul made himself a servant to all lost men to share with them the gospel. Thus he was always building bridges and earning the right to preach and building platforms for the gospel. See, it really bothers me when I run into Christians, even leaders, who have the cavalier attitude, well, who cares what people think, what they say about me? I just just want to serve, serve God. That's all that matters to me. I'm free from what other people think. Paul too was free from all men. But then he tells us, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. He realized that for the gospel's sake, his reputation was important. It should matter to him what other people think about him. For how other people saw him would determine their willingness to look into the gospel he preached. If they respected Paul then they would want to know what made him tick. This would open doors for a witness. See, Paul could have bulldozed through life with his head down, unconcerned about public opinion. But Paul realized that spreading the gospel is a people business, and it matters what people think about the preacher. Disrespect the messenger, and it's easier to reject the message. Only the foolish pastor is oblivious to what people think about him. He desires a good reputation. Well, Paul elaborates on what this means to be a servant to people in verse 20. He says, And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. When Paul preached the gospel, he understood who his audience was. Now, he never tinkered with the message, but he tailored his methods to the culture of the people to whom he spoke. When his audience was Jewish, he wore his little yarmulke, and he ate kosher. And he didn't work on the Sabbath. When your goal is delivering the gospel, it's not the time to flaunt your freedom or to try to prove a point. A lost soul needs Jesus. The goal is to find common ground. He says, To those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. When Paul preached to the Jew, he came as a Jew. But when he preached to the Gentiles, he ordered a pork barbecue sandwich. Rather than a yarmulke, he probably wore his Roman toga. He fit in so he could speak out. He used his freedom, not for his own selfish enjoyment, but to be a more effective witness for Jesus and a minister of the gospel. Paul was always faithful, but he was also flexible. He even says, to the weak, I became as weak, that I might win the weak. If it took becoming poor to win the poor, to Jesus, Paul would sell all his belongings. He didn't care. If it took being weak to win the weak, he would fast for three weeks and put himself in a diminished state, if that's what it took to convince someone of the gospel. You see, culturally speaking, not morally, not spiritually, but culturally There was nothing that Paul wouldn't do to reach folks with the gospel. There wasn't a single liberty he wasn't willing to forfeit if he could reach someone for Christ. Imagine, if Paul knew that donning a gold and navy sweatshirt and cheering for the rambling wreck would win someone to Christ, he'd do it. That's amazing. Paul would give up anything for Christ. He says, I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now certainly God can surprise us. But it is most likely that it's the biker who will lead the other biker to Jesus. It is the housewife who will win the housewife. It's the golfer who will win the other golfer. It's the salesman who will lead his fellow salesman to Christ. Paul never compromised morally or spiritually or biblically, but he did adapt culturally to folks that he wanted to reach. He found common ground and he built a bridge for the sake of the gospel. You know, traditionally, the church approaches the surrounding culture in one of two ways. Either isolation or imitation. Either we isolate from our surrounding society, we hide ourselves, we refuse to get out among others, or we imitate the society and we compromise and we lose our distinctiveness. God doesn't want us to do either. There is a third option infiltrate. This is what Paul did. He took the distinctives of a Christian and he became all things to all men. He related culturally to the people where they were at so he could bring them to where they needed to be into saving faith in Jesus. You know, over the years, we've, we've battled with this in our own church. We have people who come in with a certain cultural mindset and they don't understand the bigger picture. Over the years, we've had some church folk complain about our music. Oh man, I don't like that rock and roll music. I can't stand the rock and roll music. You guys need to sing some hymns. But then the same people would grumble if we had a lack of young people in our church. Hey, you can't have it both ways. What do you want? A cozy atmosphere for the dignified and the sanctified or do you want a place that's inviting and relatable to modern to a modern environment and to the modern people that are around us in which we live? An expert on evangelism, Donald McGravin, he once said, The world has more winnable people than ever before, but it's possible to come out of a ripe field empty-handed. And that is what's happening in so many churches today. Our world is hungry for the good news, but the church doesn't always present it in a compelling way. When Hudson Taylor landed in mainland China, he struggled in his efforts to spread the gospel. One day the Lord told him, to give up his Western clothes and customs, to dress like the Chinese. He even cut his hair. Sadly, this offended his fellow missionaries, and it drew their sharp criticism. But it built a bridge to the locals that yielded a great spiritual harvest. Hudson Taylor didn't go to China to reach other missionaries. I love what the founder of the Salvation Army, William Booth, once said, I would stand on my head and play a tambourine with my feet if I thought it would help me win one lost soul to Jesus. That is exactly how I feel. I'll try anything other than sin if it helped me to reach one person for Jesus Christ. I'm telling you the truth, I'd even cheer for Georgia Tech. Well, maybe. Paul closes this section. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. Paul had become like a Corinthian to win the Corinthians. See, Corinth was the home of the Isthmian Games, a sporting contest second only to the ancient Olympics. The Corinthians were sports enthusiasts, and it is the fan that reaches the fan. And that's why he finishes up chapter 9 by using a sports analogy. He compares the Christian life to an athlete's training and mentality. And that is what we'll look at next week.